Welcome to the Seven Things EMS Podcast, a continuing education offering of Limmer Education. Seven Things EMS Podcast is designed to give you what you need to succeed in EMS. It's conversational, informational, and without the fluff. We're back with another episode of Seven Things EMS. I'm Dan Limmer, and I am incredibly happy today to be here with Dr. Tony Tomasoni, a boarded uh, physician in emergency medicine and toxicology. And our seven pre-hospital toxicology tips are going to be, I think, an epic uh, episode and presentation of some amazing information in seven bite-sized pieces. Welcome, Tony Tomasoni. Hi, Dan. It's great. It's great to great to see you and to talk to you. And uh, we go back uh, a long way in this. And you've always had a way of making toxicology relevant and interesting. Uh, your background with uh, emergency medicine and and EMS just really is going to put this together. So one of our hallmarks is not to have a lot of stuff in the beginning. So I think we should right get right to our our seven things. And I'm going to just serve it right up to you now. Number one is use the alphabet to gather your data. Um, we're big on the alphabet and EMS and our ABCs and CABs, but you're going to take it further for us. Yeah. One of the things I love about toxicology is that it's all about solving puzzles most of the time. And you can't be good at solving puzzles if you can't collect a good data set. It's hard to make good decisions with partial or bad information. So the ABCs help me collect the data set that I need, whether I'm like spot on, fresh for the day, or bone tired at the end of the day. They're, they're a guide for me. Uh, I'll give you the ABCs and CABs. Um, at this point, we usually try to do something concurrent with stabilization. So I think about IVs, O2, monitor at about that point as well. But I dig right into D, which is my disability exam. And I know you're familiar with that. Uh, a couple of quick pointers. If it's a, a real toxicology case, you have to be aware that there's still potential for trauma. Some people are found at the bottom of the stairs after they have their little toxicologic mishap, or they might roll out of bed, bump their head on the bed stand. But if it's purely a toxic insult, that's going to affect both hemispheres. And so when we try to gauge a level of consciousness, AVPU, just alert, responsive to voice, to pain, or unresponsible, often do us. GCS, in a pure tox case without trauma, doesn't have much prognostic value. Uh, this is a good time to think about antidotes, too. So uh, get a finger stick if you can. Administer glucose if you can't. You have a little bit of time to give thiamine afterwards. Um, but let's talk about naloxone for a minute because that's so important with today's overdoses. I know that all sorts of providers uh, are now empowered to give naloxone as are folks that aren't trained in a lot of circumstances when we encounter a patient that's found down, it's really appropriate just to give the full dose that we might have in our hand. And that's usually around two milligrams, whether it's intranasal or, or intravenous. But, if we have the option based on our, our uh, medical protocols or maybe a very quick conversation with med control, there are times when we have a patient who's found down, who looks like a habituated user, 
was going to go into withdrawal if we give them a fully reversing dose. And many folks don't realize that 0.4 milligrams of Narcan was originally packaged in those little vials because for most folks, 0.4 milligrams can be a fully reversing dose. Yeah, you know, I think we have to be careful um, about, we hear stories that, oh, we needed so much to get this uh, person back. Um, and I think we also forget that we still do have the BVM, that we have the ability to take what the opioid has done and hold that off to be able to make good decisions. We like to go with the wonder drug and we like to go with the big guns in EMS. But the fact is that BVM is going to give us some time to make good decisions. Yep. It's absolutely true. We had a, a little case like that in the emergency department the other day where somebody reached for a little too much Narcan, a little too quick, instead of reaching for the BVM. And I think the patient would have been a little bit better served. There are times that you need huge doses, repeat doses of two, four, six, eight, sometimes 10 milligrams of naloxone when there's a substantial overdose or when there's something that's binding really avidly to the opioid receptors like some of the new designer drugs do. But there are times when it's a little bit safer for the patient and for the staff, too, considering you're going to have these people in transport in a relatively uncontrolled environment where I just take that 0.4 milligrams of naloxone if I have it in that container, in that size container. And uh, what we'll do is squirt 1 cc out of a 10 cc flush, leaving me 9 cc's of saline draw up one cc in naloxone with 0.4 milligrams in it, invert the, the uh, syringe a couple times to mix it, and then I push it one cc at a time every minute or two until I get my patient breathing, but not necessarily alert and definitely not in withdrawal, hollering and screaming. Really, truly uh, titrating it. <clears throat> and I think it's fascinating that you put these toxicologically in the disability because these things really do show when we're talking about uh, glucose, you mentioned thiamine briefly, uh, naloxone, which is available to providers at all levels, that these patients are going to be uh, have some level of apparent disability and mental status changes. So we're getting to that early. But you go on with E, F, G, and H. And I think that there's a lot of, a lot of gravy and good tips in those as well. So after D, running down the alphabet, let's talk about E. E is for expose your patient. It's a little difficult to do in the pre-hospital field, but there are times that you might get some valuable information. It might be part of a trauma assessment that may or may not be related to toxicologic insults. It may also be an opportunity to find little hidden goodies, pill bottles, prescription bottles, uh, vials of drug, baggies of drug. You have to be very, very careful, as you know, because if uh, you're padding through a patient's belongings. Occasionally you'll find things like syringes and uh, nobody needs a needle stick. So that's, that's kind of dicey. If it's cold weather, it's very difficult to expose a patient outdoors. This is something that you might have to share with the emergency providers on entry to the emergency department. Uh, but if you, if you have the opportunity, sometimes a quick look, a quick pat down will provide you with some data about the case that you're trying to examine and treat. And I think that it's important to note here that we're not talking about, you know, searching for evidence or anything like that. I mean, you're not only doing it for your own safety, um, but to be able to figure out what it is, if someone is doing something illegal and they're feeling 
like all of a sudden they're going to go out, they're going to hide stuff. And that it's our job to find that so they can get the best care they need. That's right. It's all about the care. F is a letter that's really most properly reserved for the emergency providers. It stands for fingers and tubes. Uh, sometimes people will hide things in orifices where they don't know where they belong, <laughs> but where they're sometimes absorbed from. Um, when when I was a young doc, crack was making a, a big splash in our town. And uh, occasionally we'd have folks that would uh, hear that knock on the door on Friday or Saturday night. And, uh, well, the water pressure in the, the whole block would start dropping as people were trying to flush their evidence. Whatever was left over would sometimes be swallowed. And, uh, you know, a lot of times that material is not packaged to be swallowed and make a safe trip through the gut so it can be absorbed. And we would see quite a few tachycardic, hypertensive, hypervigilant patients just pounding away with their pulses on the monitors in the emergency department on weekend nights. Um, but if we know that they've done it and what they've done, it gives us a leg up on being able to help them. We know how to treat their, their complications. And incarcerated people can also, uh, where we sometimes turn those up as well, whether they're last minute hiding it or trying to smuggle, uh, we find those those places that fingers would check um, may often you know, be there. And while we will leave the, uh, that particular part to the emergency physicians largely, um, we're talking about some good EMS stuff, about tenderness and other things you have here as well. You bet. I mean, this is just an opportunity to uh, gather more data. We use G for gastric and other decontamination. If someone swallowed a life-threatening amount of a life-threatening substance and they've done it within the hour, it might be an opportunity to give some activated charcoal if that's consistent with your protocols. We have to be very vigilant when we're doing that because if it's a substance that can make our patient obtunded very quickly, we don't need a patient rocking in the back of an ambulance who might have nausea, vomiting, and and obtunded mental status that's going to make it difficult for them to protect the airway. Uh, aspiration of charcoal is really a, a bad thing. Yeah, even suc like suctioning. I, that's not a, there's been a lot of bad vomit out there, but I would imagine charcoal would be there. If I can just uh, quickly um, say there's a lot of people that are, that are saying, well, you know, we have activated charcoal, but we never use it. Or, you know, is it really out in EMS or is it really in? What would the toxicologist say to that? I would say that um, in the past, people probably used techniques like gastric emptying, ipecac, mm. charcoal, relatively indiscriminately. Remember what I said when we started this part of the conversation, life-threatening amount, life-threatening substance. And to that, I would even add, for which there really isn't an effective antidote or rescue therapy. So if I have someone that's ingested a fair amount of acetaminophen, I'm worried for their liver but it's a recent ingestion, do I or don't I charcoal? Well, I usually don't because we have N-acetylcysteine, which is so effective at preventing toxicity from Tylenol that it's just not worth the risk of aspiration. So, so we, may, we may, if we had a longer transport time, or would something like that be more of a benefit if we were to, weren't able to be able to provide that gastric uh, that, that therapy, maybe that would be a, something that would be better? There are times, yeah. Again, I probably wouldn't do it for acetaminophen, but you know, let's right. make it another another substance. Let's make it something like a cyclic antidepressant. 
These can produce obtunded mental status pretty quickly, but they are also relatively lethal. So then you have a relative value judgment. That's one you might want to get some help with from your medical control. If we take something that's maybe not as likely to cause obtundation, then in uh, furlong transport, charcoal might make sense. We might prevent some badness in a relatively safe setting. Yeah, but I, I think as we go into your last year, eight years history, but I think as we go into this, it really isn't bad to say that there are many times a paramedic will call their normal medical control and medical control says you got to talk to the tox people to make that decision that that sometimes you're really looking at that poison control or uh, somewhere that can give you that can have the knowledge that you're talking about right here i don't think it's realistic for a, a medic and i think there's a lot of our medical control docs that say i think i'm i don't really have the necessary information to make this decision that's true you can always get help from someone at a certified poison center and if you're in the U.S., you always have access to a certified poison center as long as you have a cell phone in service. We'll talk about that a little later. All right, so history. History is really the crux of the matter when it comes to toxicology cases. I like to say that toxicology cases are really history cases. And we're going to say, and we're going to, number three uh, expands on that. So why don't we go into number two and just, this is uh, number two, search the scene. You know, we often are the eyes and ears for the emergency department when we're out there. I don't care if it's a if it's a car crash or if it's a violence or we're used to reporting um, relevant facts from the scene routinely. But I think there's maybe the best case of, of all those things for what we can gather uh, and find at the scene and how we report it. That, what a big responsibility that is, actually. It's huge and it's key whether it comes to gathering history from the scene or searching the scene, EMS providers are in a special position. If that information isn't gathered at that time, it's often lost. And that makes the, our job in the emergency department much more difficult. So if you're picking up a person, it seems like they're depressed or it seems like they have altered mental status and there's concern for a drug ingestion or a, a, a drug mishap, perhaps, taking a quick look around and knowing where to look can be absolutely pivotal and it can provide us with information that we might not get otherwise. For example, if you find a patient obtunded in bed, it's worth a look on the nightstand, under the bed, in the wastebasket in the bedroom, in the wastebasket in the bathroom, possibly even in the kitchen to see if there are empty pill bottles, empty liquor bottles, any other clues as to what might have been ingested that's causing the problem or contributing to the problem. Uh, again, not everyone who has a toxicologic misadventure is going to advertise that. And sometimes folks will stumble around in, in their altered state and they might fall down the stairs. It may look like a trauma. But if the patient doesn't seem appropriate, you have to think about CNS injury, and you also have to think about intoxication. So it's still worth a very quick look around. I know, I know we have to move quickly in, in EMS and in emergency medicine, but this is an opportunity to grab data that we don't want to otherwise lose. Well, you know, I think where this comes in, there's every time you talk about something, and my mind goes back to a different uh, part of EMS, which comes together, and the two things 
that really uh, come to my mind when you talk about this. One is situational awareness, you know, being aware of what's going on. You've really got to be able to do that. And the other one is um, differential diagnosis, right? That that this really, if we're looking at uh, taking our differentials, we have a young, healthy person at the bottom of the stairs, you know, and it's not the fall. It's maybe not the syncope. You say to yourself, you know, why, if this wasn't a slip, what is it that the top of the stairs holds the answer? And I think that's a combination of both awareness and being open enough to be able to uh, to do that and sorting out while you're trying to choreograph what's probably a relatively hectic scene. And speaking of basics, scene safety is another big one for toxicology. Uh, we've had instances of patients that have collapsed because of lack of oxygen in their environment or maybe even an active asphyxiant like carbon monoxide or hydrogen sulfide. So your radar has to be up all the time. That's that's part of searching the scene. Yeah. Well, use your you nose, know, use your eyes, use your ears, use it all. Yeah, because you, you'll need that. That's, that's how you're going to make your decisions. If people can feed you, the toxicologist, the right information, your job becomes much easier. And it helps us provide support for pre-hospital providers and transport too. Sometimes yeah. there are things we can do. Well, let's let's take this uh, search and roll it right into the number three. Tox cases are history cases. And I think this really kind of expands on that search thing. But you have a lot of points here about things that you would like to know from the scene. That history is important to you. You bet. It's absolutely critical to the safe and effective management, management of poisoned patients so we talked about searching for pill bottles, med lists, sometimes on the refrigerator if we're lucky, sometimes in the last discharge instructions from an ED visit or a hospital stay. Uh, it can help us. Uh, location of paraphernalia used in uh, drug use can be helpful. Uh, sometimes chemicals are found at a scene. We get really, really worried when we hear about chemists or pharmacists or medical personnel that are found with altered mental status, maybe with a history of depression, because they have access to some of the scariest chemicals going. And once in a while, they'll actually use them. Yeah, and these, these certainly have been some, some crazy times, and that's not out of the question. I think the thing that comes to my mind from what you have said here in this history case concept is that there's an amount of detail that the average street provider might not realize or may not understand the value of. Now, the pill count, uh, you know, when you're in a fast call, I've had times where I've had pill bottles and there's enough people around you're saying, okay, this prescription was filled five days ago and you're, you're going through trying to make some sense of it. But even, you know, we say, well, they took some um, uh, Losartan and they took some uh, Atenolol, but how many and the, the strength and the really we're so in tune to pharmacology, right dose, right med, right patient, right? You know, all those things we're taught. That's all the stuff we need to know to give to, to you to figure this out. Absolutely. Uh, th those details make, make an important uh, amount of difference for us. So we like to know what, what was the substance or what were the substances that the patient potentially had exposure to? As you look at those pill bottles, it may be clear that some of them are pretty full and haven't been used even as much as they were intended to be used. Some of them that are recently prescribed might be kind of empty. That's important data for us. When we look at what, 
we want to identify drugs by name, but it's also important to think about whether these drugs are immediate release drugs or now for dosing convenience, many are coming in sustained release forms. And that matters a lot to us because that tells us whether we have a short-term problem that's going to get bad quickly, but have a finite life, or we might have a problem that is going to creep in over time and be rel relatively persistent, possibly even for days, if we're talking about a sustained release drug. So wow. immediate release, sustained release. What strength? Sometimes if the bottle's not clearly marked, uh, immediate release, sustained release, we can still get a cue or a clue from the strength. Some drugs have overlapping immediate release and sustained release strengths, but when we see big doses, like lots of milligrams, those drugs are sometimes more likely to be sustained release drugs. So just knowing what, how much can be very important, what type. And then what are the strengths of these drugs on our list? Let's make sure we try to know the number of milligrams for everything that's coming down the pike. Let's try to do our best estimate for how many pills or capsules were available, how many of those might have been ingested. And folks don't always use meds as intended. Sometimes folks will use oral meds in interesting ways. They can crush them up and snort them. Sometimes they'll crush them, dissolve them, and inject them. So by what route was the substance internalized? That's, that's important. What else did you do with the medicines that you took? Did you do alcohol? Did you take other depressant drugs? Did we smoke a little marijuana or use some other illicit substances? It might also be important for us to know if the patients overdosed in the past and if they have with what agent. Sometimes patients will use the same agents again. And one of the things that um, I want to point out while we're gathering all this history that occasionally patients aren't very forthcoming, at least not on our fat first pass at gathering history. It's worth a second, a third, a fourth pass sometimes. Folks will sometimes, as they're getting sicker, or sometimes as they've had a little time to ponder what they've done, decide that, gee, I really didn't want to hurt myself. Maybe I do want to get some help and they'll start to break down and provide us a little information. So just because you don't get the data on the first pass doesn't mean yeah, this, it's not forthcoming. Right. It's like, the, it's like the search concept. We're not doing this for any reason other than you know, to help them. So I don't think we're interrogating, but I do think there's times that you have to be a little pushy. You have to ask more than one time. And I think sometimes it's fair to say, you know, if, if, you, if you go unconscious, then we're never going to know. You know, that we're very, you know, even if they overdosed in the past, you mentioned uh, suicidal ideations. We sometimes try to tiptoe around those things. But when the clock is ticking, and if the pill bottles you have in front of you are going to be uh, depressants, they're going to affect the level of consciousness, maybe their breathing, that time is limited. Um, and we're really the only ones that are going to have this entire scene and perhaps the opportunity to talk to them in front of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, resist the temptation to say, well, gee, I'm not getting the history. Maybe they'll get it at the ER later because there may not be a later when the patient can talk to us. And you say to bring all the pill bottles and the packages to the emergency department. Pack Love it up, throw it in a big bag, bring it. 
love to have it. Sometimes I've received entire shopping bags full of stuff. And uh, sometimes patients have done a lot of what's in those bags, sometimes only a thing or two. Uh, very important. And we're talking a lot about pharmaceuticals and street drugs, but folks will ingest all kinds of crazy things. One of those cases where uh, my EMTs came in with an attended patient and a huge bag of substances had some really interesting consequences. This is a case where a patient uh, had a psychotic break and had a big delusional system built up uh, about atoning for past transgressions. And he was trying to somehow cleanse his body by ingesting all kinds of crazy things. There were some pharmaceuticals. There were a lot of over-the-counter products that uh, had no business being ingested. Things like reloading powder for firearm shells, uh, a bottle of bourbon that was empty and off color with something dissolved in it, um, all kinds of all kinds of stuff. And when you don't know what some of these things are, it's uh, difficult to understand what the consequences might be. There's always information that can help you identify some of these substances. If it's something like uh, an herbicide, a pesticide of any sort, insecticides, there's always an EPA registration number on it. Other products might have CAS numbers on them. And those are unique identifiers for those products. Um, it's difficult when someone comes in and not to pick on brand names because uh, most of these manufacturers are very responsible. But they say something like I have RAID or I have Decon. Well, that trade name applies to a whole host of very different products. So pinning down an exact name or bringing the package or identifying an EPA registration number or a CAS number be absolutely pivotal for us. Those are very important things. Well, that's, that's great. And I, I think that uh, we talked about so many podcasts that we could do in the future, <clears throat> but you gave me an idea for another one. You know, stories from the toxicologist. I'm sure that we could go on, uh, you could go on for some time, and I'd be excited to listen about some of the things you have probably seen people take and do and some of the effects they've had. So let's put that one on the list uh, as we move. Yeah. The rest of that story. It it involved anticoagulants and sharp objects, and it, it wasn't good, but it had a happy ending. I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm very glad. You know, I'm a big, uh, I love, um, you know, mnemonics and uh, things for memory. Uh, I saw my seven things. I think of everything in numbers and mnemonics. It's made my brain works. Number four is think of F sound sources of information when gathering your tox history. And you have four of them. I do. Yeah. Uh, just a little memory device for me. I remember things well with stories, but I also remember things well with, uh, like, tags, letters, numbers. So the F's for me remind me to think about asking friends that may be on scene that won't show up at the emergency department what happened here. Perhaps family members. Not everybody's thrilled. Not everybody attends their family members in the emergency department. And those are opportunities at history that we may never get on the emergency department side, but that you might have access to on the EMS side of, of these encounters. Uh, for me, or if you have a long transport, talking to physicians, 
or pharmacies or looking for those med lists from physicians from pharmacies. They provide us with information that could otherwise be lost. So the um, F things, family, friends, things. pharmacies. All right. I love it. Well, let's go, let's go to number five. I think that we're on a run a roll. And um, I think that if we were talking game show, um, we would say that you can always phone a friend. Uh, that if you have to call for help, you can you can do that. Number five is if you don't know what a drug or product or chemical is, um, you can always ask. And uh, I think that's great. Even the the internet pill identifiers. Um, I'll grab some just common you know things around and do a scenario at the college uh, here in, in Galveston. And students now being very internet. Uh, savvy and knowing what's out there will go right to the pill identifier. Others, not so much. But there are a lot of ways that you can get help. I mean, a lot of ways. Tremendous number of ways. There are all sorts of uh, automated data sources. I love my my smartphone. It's my peripheral brain. I, I store a lot of information in it. In addition to pill identifiers, there are programs that can help us with chemical or radiological exposures like CHEM and REM. These are downloadable for free. There are uh, resources like the uh, National Response Guidebook that can help us identify numbers on placards. And if we've forgotten it, can help us decode placard symbols so that we know what the hazards are to ourselves as rescuers and to our patients. Uh, another great source of information that we alluded to earlier is your regional poison center. Anywhere in the United States, you can reach a specialist in poison information or a medical toxicologist like myself by calling 1-800-222-1222. And that number you. again. Yeah. <laughs> 1-800-222-1222. And there are Operators tremendous... Operators are standing by. Yeah, 24-7 all across the country. Uh, you might have local hazmat resources uh, for large events or large-scale events or scary events that we think might be terrorist events. There are uh, local and state emergency management agencies, response teams like hazmat teams, our uh, National Guard with their uh, civil support teams has been instrumental in helping us with some challenging cases in the past. So those are, those are great resources for you. In fact, we mentioned things like CAS numbers and EPA registration numbers. Those are available uh, online as well. There are a number of databases. Uh, you can download, download one, toss it on your phone, or actually just look them up as long as you have internet access. Um, as we mentioned too then, if you have a brand name, Try to get the whole product name with it. The brand name alone is not often that helpful to us. Would you say um, if you found a bunch of things, now if you've got, uh, you know, raid, you've got other stuff, um, certainly hazardous stuff. We obviously don't want to bring bad stuff to the hospital. But we could snap photos of it, right? We could take Absolutely. smartphone photos. Absolutely. Yeah, and there are some times that containers are, are huge, unwieldy, you know, bags right. of fertilizer or uh, things that should be picked up by hazmat that you don't want to bring. Photos are awesome. And I think the other thing that I see uh, every, you know, I read through all of these seven things before we did this, but as we talk about it, more and more comes to mind. The thing that comes to mind is, is that a lot of the things we talk about 
you know, the methyl ethyl bad stuff and all this. We think about them as large scale incidents, but all, you know, the, the material safety sh uh, the status sheets and the, we think about those for big things. But when you have a single patient that has a toxicological, a toxicological emergency, that same information goes for small scale things too. I think we sometimes just forget about the scale of these things. Absolutely. Uh, things like safety data sheets can be used for an individual exposure just as easily as a mass exposure. Uh, a quick word about safety data sheets. These are available online as well, and they're tied to specific products. The quality of data that we're going to get as care providers can be really variable, though, depending on who constructed a safety data sheet. Sometimes these are put together by chemists, and they're really good at communicating physical and chemical properties, hazards that are associated with a particular agent. But they may not be very good at getting beyond basic first aid. And on the other hand, if we have a safety data sheet that's put together with a healthcare provider, or from a healthcare provider's point of view, the first aid information and maybe even information about antidotal therapy is likely to be of higher quality. So your search may not end with a safety data sheet, but it's always good to grab one if it's available because it helps us to identify a very specific product. Uh, folks at the Poison Center can take it a step further for you if you need some help researching those agents. All right. You know, uh, EMS people are... We can call them meat and potatoes. They like the they like the stuff. They like this the stuffing. They like the things. I think we've had a great uh, you know build up in these things to talk about the history. Now we're going to get into something that you and I have talked about doing our next podcast on toxidromes. We've gone from having people try and memorize all these individual things and medications to coming up with uh, I mean at some point these toxidromes where we we have. Uh, a way to look at larger scope things and understand uh, better, not having to memorize things. You start with how to identify the toxidromes, how important vital signs are. But just, I think, just talking just a bit about what a toxidrome is and what it does for us, then roll into those vital signs, I think is just a great place to do this. This is, I look at this as, as some meat and potatoes here. Absolutely. I think um, there's something like 100,000 chemicals used each day in the United States and untold numbers of pharmaceuticals, and that list gets longer every day. Even as a toxicologist, if I had to try to memorize each one of those agents, it's, it's an undoable task. So it's handy to have a tool that helps us recognize what's happening with a patient syndromically. And those tools, fortunately for us, will often apply to large classes of agents and give us and they give us a problem solving tool that can be absolutely essential, especially when history is not forthcoming. So I like to think of toxidromes as constellations of clinical clues that'll help point us toward the identity of a drug or a poison. And it's pretty easy to recognize some of the more common toxidromes. But the first thing is, what are the elements of a toxidrome? How are we going to figure it out? I like to start with vital signs. They're vital for a reason. And I'll give you heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, temperature, even if it's just feels warm, feels cool, looks vasodilated, looks clamped down. 
But the fifth vital sign for me is not pain or pulse ox, as some suggest. It's mental status. And the reason for that is that our heart rate, our respirations, our metabolism exist to support our central processing units. And without our central processing units, we aren't who we are. So for me, if there's something wrong with the central processing unit, that's vital. That's essential that we know that. So there's no such thing as a little altered mental status either. That that you know any alteration is significant for that central processing unit. That's what it tells yes, us. Absolutely. So heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, at least a qualitative a qualitative temperature, and a good look at mental status will form the basis of our understanding of toxinomes. We'll provide you with some illustrations in a minute. They're nothing to be scared of. I think people hear the word toxidrome and think that it's, uh, you know, I teach my EMTs and my AEMTs, the ones that you have on your sheet, just because they are uh, things you see and they, they, they make sense. Uh, but I think people should, should lean into these and not be afraid of the concept. They really are there to simplify and to help. They're absolutely keys to puzzles. So once we've grabbed our most basic autonomic vital signs and our mental status, we can often get a little more refinement by taking a look at other autonomic functions. So what do the pupils look like? Big, small, reactive, non-reactive. What are the mucous membranes like while we're up at the head end? Are they, are they wet? Are they dry? Are they tacky somewhere in between? What about skin color, temperature, moisture, bowel sounds? Are they present? Are they absent? If they're present, are they hyperactive? Uh, maybe the patient's been incontinent of urine or stool. All those things can give us cues and clues. Uh, salivation, drooling, sometimes airway burns or evidence of airway injury associated with strider or other adventitious breath sounds like wheezes or rails can be signs that something's gone wrong with the respiratory system. Maybe it was an inhaled drug or poison. That's responsible. So we can take so a look good at a good assessment. A good assessment is really um, very important to do this. Now, can I go back for one thing that I remember a good friend of mine, um, Joe Mistovich, saying in opioid overdoses, not all opioids, especially some of the synthetics, are going to give you uh, the pupillary changes. Uh, is that a true statement that uh, some of the, there'll be some uh, opioids, we say, oh, if they've got pinpoint pupils, you go, it's got to be this. But I don't know if we should really hang our hat on any one thing. And that one I'm just particularly curious about. Well, there are a lot of things that can happen to pupillary responses. Uh, it might depend on the specific agent. Some agents will, some agents won't necessarily dilate pupils, but that might also be dependent on the dose taken. Small dose may not do it. Larger dose might. It might be that we have a mixed toxidrome. Did somebody speedball mixing their opioid with cocaine uh. or, or goofballs these days, uh, heroin or fentanyl plus amphetamines? So now you have a little war going on between a couple of different toxidromes. So let's talk about a couple of these basic toxidromes. Um, you brought up the opioid toxidrome. I'm going to start with the sympathomimetic toxidrome, which is the opposite side of that coin, because I think that one's easy to understand, and then it'll make sense what's happening with opioids. <clears throat> so when we think about sympathomimetic drugs, 
we think about the fight or flight part of the nervous system. And uh, if you run that all the way back, you're going to remember that that's a response in which your heart rate is going to increase so that you can run faster and jump higher. Your respiratory rate might increase a little to support that increased metabolic demand. Blood pressure is going to go up pretty substantially in some cases. I've seen blood pressures so high they're not measurable with a blood pressure cuff because they're over 300 milliliters of mercury. Wow. Rare, rare, thank goodness, but that's extreme sympathomimetic response. Uh, this is a case in which pupils are going to dilate. I like to remember that by thinking that if I'm going to flee or fight in the dark, I'm going to need to gather more light so I can see what's, what's scaring me and scary things that make me want to fight or run happen at night. So pupillary dilation is part of that toxidrome. Well, that's good enough for a start there. You okay. might also have you might also have bowel sounds that are sometimes increased. If you look at the basic physiology, they would tell us that if we're diverting all our blood flow to our muscles to run and fight, then maybe bowel sounds shouldn't be decreased. This is probably the one place where some of that basic physiology seems to break down a little in practice. These folks might have active bowel sounds. But if you take a look at the opposite side of that coin now, you would have a situation in which we are anti-sympathetic. And that's exactly what happens with some depressant drugs. And among the strongest depressant drugs, we have the opioids. So that explains why pupils might be small in an opioid overdose. We're suppressing our normal adrenaline and, and norepinephrine and its function. And the pupils might get small. And the heart rate over time might get bradycardic and our respiratory rate, and the depth of our respirations will be depressed. And as that happens, the little fires in our cells are not being fueled and not being fed oxygen well, and our body temperatures may start to drop. So if you find a uh, patient who's a little hypothermic on a relatively temperate day and they're very obtunded, it might be the opioid toxin. If you get the small pupils, that's a gift. If they're not there, it doesn't mean that's not at least part of the problem. So those patients might still warrant a little test dose of naloxone. So sympathetic, antisympathetic, or opioid toxidrome, if you will. There are a whole other subset of patients that fit in that sympathetic group. Those are folks that are undergoing withdrawal whether it's from alcohol, benzodiazepines, or opioids. They are likely to be tachycardic, hypertensive, tremulous. They may have dilated pupils. They might not yet, but they may. And so remember, withdrawal can be a subset of sympathomimetic toxicomes. And withdrawal is not benign. The, the medical conditions and problems that can happen during withdrawal, it's not, you know, okay, tough it out, you stop using drugs. I mean, clinically... Uh, it's a very dangerous time. Absolutely. Opioid withdrawal is tremendously uncomfortable. Patients that are experiencing withdrawal really need it to stop. It's not just a want, it's a medical condition. And on occasion, they'll be at high risk for overdose because they'll do what they feel like they need to do to make it stop. They may take uh, over-the-counter opioid-like or opioid substances to excess. They may do it with agents that block metabolism of those drugs. Very, very dangerous. 
and ratcheting it up a notch, alcohol withdrawal is the most dangerous of withdrawals. It has high mortality if folks progress to severe alcohol withdrawal and DTs. It can be as high as 30% by some studies. Higher and older ones. Benzos are more similar to alcohol withdrawal. You can get very sick and uh, have tremendous complications from benzodiazepine withdrawal. Not at all benign. As we leave this uh, sympathomimetic and the anti, uh, the opioid toxidrome, let's just put some drugs into each category. I think the opioids, we, we kind of know that we have all of our, we have our heroin and our fentanyl, our morphines, any of the prescribed um, opioid medications that are out there. I don't know if you want to add anything to those. I think sure. the sympathomimetic may also surprise us what fits in there. Well, let's uh, throw out one or two more concepts related to the opioids. There are opioid medications that don't really look too much like opioids. Take loperamide, an antidiarrheal drug, that actually will hit opioid receptors. And uh, folks that are withdrawing, that are habituated to opioids, many of them know that they might be able to stem the tide for a little while by taking huge amounts of loperamide. Not safe very dangerous. So that's one that doesn't look like an opioid. And then there are these days, unfortunately, numerous, numerous designer opioids coming down the pike. And some of these are even more potent than fentanyl. If you were to take morphine as your uh, reference drug, fentanyl would be 25 or 50 times more potent. So a little bit goes a long way. There are super fentanyls, that are even more potent than fentanyl. There are drugs like isotinidazine that are starting to make a splash on the drug abuse scene, and uh, those are even more potent. So, wow, uh, a lot to learn in in this particular field, and it's changing daily. Yeah, the, the face of drug abuse across America is changing daily. Sympathomimetics are going to include things that people generally term as uppers. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it may be drugs like ADHD drugs. Uh, there's uh, mixed amphetamine salts that are sold for the treatment of ADHD. There are amphetamines. They're sold on the street. We have hallucinogenic amphetamines like MDMA, MDEA, and sometimes sold as Molly. All the drugs known as bath salts, which are a variety of cathinones related chemically to stuff in cot, which is an herb that grows in Somalia. Uh, cocaine clearly fits on the list. Crack cocaine as well. So there's a, a whole host of stimulant drugs. And over-the-counter pseudoephedrine is another. There are also some herbals out there these days. All right, thank you. So we got two more toxidromes. As we, we're coming up on time, I don't want to jip anyone. I think we've done well, but I know, do you have, do you have two other toxidromes uh, you wanted to mention? Sure. <clears throat> there are also opposite sides of the same coin. Um, there's stimulation, there's depression or suppression. And this would be the cholinergic toxidrome, characterized by the keyword wet, and the anticholinergic toxidrome, characterized by the keyword dry, that we'll talk about. There are a few different ways that we might end up with a cholinergic excess. The cholinergic toxidrome takes its name from the neurotransmitter acetylcholine, which drives our parasympathetic nervous system. 
and nerves will release acetylcholine on effector organs uh, like things that we find in my favorite little mnemonic, dumbbells. So on the gut to get diarrhea, on the bladder to get urination, in the eyes to cause meiosis. Then we have the killer bees, bradycardia, bronchorrhea, and bronchospasm. So there are receptors for acetylcholine in the heart, in the lungs. Those are the killer bees. E for emesis, back to the gut again. L for lacrimation, which is tearing. Uh, there are receptors for acetylcholine in our tear glands. And finally, S for salivation. So stimulating these receptors by the release of acetylcholine causes this toxic room when it's taken to excess. We need all these things in balance. The problem occurs when there's either an excess of an agent that's like acetylcholine in us, or when something prevents us from breaking down our acetylcholine normally. And there are poisons like organophosphates, carbamates, nerve agents that can poison our cholinesterase and allow acetylcholine to build up to excessive levels. All right. Good examples. Dumbbells and the killer bees. On the flip side of that coin, if we block those receptors with an agent that doesn't trigger a normal response the way acetylcholine would, a true blocker, and we hit all those same places with an agent like atropine or an older generation antihistamine or a phenothiazine, some of the major tranquilizers, then we can end up with the opposite toxidrome where things that should be making normal amounts of fluid can't. Those everything opposite dumbbells. And the, the thing that we remember is an old memory device, red as a beet, dry as a bone, mad as a hatter, hot as a stone. Blind as a bat, bladder and bowel lose their tone, and the heart runs along. Patients get tachycardic. And you might be uh, looking at TV commercials now for uh, medication that we can drop in our eyes to help old guys like us see better at close range. And that drug constricts our pupils, so it takes the place of natural accommodation. We try to read close up. That drug is pilocarpine. It's a carbonate, and it causes a little acetylcholine excess at the nerves at the nerves that moderate our pupils, so we can strip. We definitely have to do this next one just on toxidromes. I think there's there's so much more. There's detail in these, and there certainly are other ones. Um, you had uh, mentioned here. Um, paramedics have the ability to take advanced hazmat life support. That's really uh, fascinating. And uh, what I think is also really fascinating is some important and common poisons don't have the, the toxidrome, the whole constellation you talk about, but things can um, make a difference in the early parts of poisoning where they're treatable. And you talk about uh, acetaminophen and aspirin in that. Yeah, exactly. It's important to remember that while every poison has its own toxidrome, and some of those toxidromes are pretty common, some toxidromes don't present until it's kind of late and damage is being done. So if someone takes a large acetaminophen overdose, with the possible exception of a little nausea and vomiting early on, they may not look too sick, and this may hide 
until the acetaminophen has been converted to toxic metabolite and the liver is damaged hours later. And if we don't gather the history about that ingestion, we miss the opportunity to treat. Our best antidote for acetaminophen is something called an acetylcysteine. And about eight hours after ingestion, its efficacy begins to decline pretty rapidly. So we definitely want to know about these relatively silent poisons. Yeah, fascinating. That's really great. Well, we're at number seven, and this is going to sound kind of like an old uh, EMS mantra here, but you have treat the patient, not the poison. I think that's one important part. We have the treat the patient, not the monitor, or treat the patient, not any device we have. And I think that, especially when it comes to criticality, we obviously have to manage our patient. Um, but also, you said, be aware of possible antidotes. This should kind of wrap that up. Kind of like a big picture finish to this is what I what I see this as. Absolutely. This is a great wrap for the talk. We'll take that in two parts. Treat the patient, not the poison. You can have a tremendously vicious poison, something scary, dangerous. But if there's no significant exposure, you don't have a problem. Toxicity is always, well, let's say it this way. Risk to the patient or even to ourselves as rescuers is effectively the product of the toxicity of the agent involved and the exposure to that agent. So if it's a highly toxic agent, but there's minimal or no exposure, we don't have a problem. We can have a huge exposure, but if the agent isn't so dangerous, we don't have much of a problem. So think about, is there real risk in the scenario, this particular scenario that we're dealing with? If the patient's showing me that there's a problem, I'll treat my patient. If the patient's not showing me a problem, I have to ask myself, is this one of those things that won't show me problems until it's too late? Or do I really have a problem at all? And we'll take a measured response. And I think going back, you can always do the phone a friend. You can reach out and get some of the answers to those things because that's a pretty important decision. Absolutely. And the, the specialists at your poison center are perfect for helping you figure this out. And if they can't help you, they can reach to a toxicologist like myself in real time for you. So those, those are things to remember. And for all the poisons that we've talked about, and for the hundreds of thousands of poisons that exist out there, there are only a handful of antidotes to a very few of those poisons. So especially for paramedics, and of course for, for docs, it's really important to know what those basic antidotes are and what they'll work for, because you don't want to miss a chance to use an antidote if one presents. All right. You know, um, I kind of like to end these. Uh, any, do you have, a, do you have a, a last word or a parting shot? Or if the toxicologist was going to send somebody out the door with a pat on the back and say, okay, yeah. go do good things, what would you say to the EMS person that's listening to this? Here it is. As much as I love toxicology, and I think there's some of the coolest puzzles in all the medicine and pre-hospital care, I got to tell you, as much as I love my antidotes, more patients are saved with really good supportive care than with antidotes or any other fancy footwork in toxicology. And that's one of the beautiful things about toxicology. We can save most of our patients most of the time with really good supportive care. Don't miss those chances to use an antidote when one exists, but think supportive care from the get-go. 
Use the alphabet to gather your, your data, search the scene, get a really great history. And sometimes you have to push for it. But it sounds like that's what's going to make it so you can actually do that job to save, uh, you know, most of the, of the people out there. There's a lot of great sources. Um, phone a friend. Uh, the Toxidromes, I think, were outstanding. And I think that was a great finish. Uh, Tony Tomasoni is just really great to have you here. Um, and I cannot wait um, to take this information and do it again. It's something that we see enough of, we don't know enough about. And I could see uh, I could see many more of these coming. And I'm just thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks. I, I just want to give a special uh, shout out to my EMS providers, all of you, because you guys really do make my life better and my patients care better. And don't forget, especially when it comes to toxicology, you have an opportunity to grab info that's going to help us do that. Thanks. All right, seven things EMS, seven pre-hospital toxicology tips as a, as a wrap for this time, but we'll see you soon. Thank you all. Be safe out there. Be well. Take care. Thank you for listening to another Limer Education Continuing Education Podcast. For more podcasts that are relevant to your practice of EMS, limereducation.com slash seven things.